Welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. Race, ethnicity, religion, nationality, sexuality, and class distinctions are socially constructed categories with real-world consequences. They were deliberately created to other others and perpetuate insider dynamics that are shaping the modern world and each of our experiences profoundly. At the same time, we are also living through a period in history where these well-established and taken-for-granted categories are being questioned, exposed, challenged, and transformed. And precisely this phenomenon is the focus of this conversation with Dr. Adams and Dr. Williams, two anthropologists who also discuss the important role of anthropological tools and perspectives to this transformation. With this conversation, we are introducing an entire series that will be hosted by the Inclusive Leadership Institute in its second season. This conversation series is dedicated to exploring how race, ethnicity, religion, nationality, sexuality, and class distinctions are shaping our experiences and perspectives in many parts of the world. So look forward to our conversation series in the second season of the Inclusive Leadership Institute. But for now, please enjoy this conversation about the topic. You know, I was intrigued, Robert, by your kind of stitching together that the currency of this conversation about race, ethnicity, religion, nationality, culture a little bit in the in the current context right now. So maybe you can do that again for us <laughs> since we're now recording. You know? Yeah. So it's saying that we're always we understand and it's becoming more widely accepted that this is a social construction. The, these categories are socially constructed, but the legacy of an idea about them being biological still lingers with us. It's a baggage. And, you know, and often we are finding ourselves tripping over these things. Um, you know, like I said, we can look around the world and see how these things are articulating themselves, whether we're talking about Eritrea and Ethiopia, they just made the peace deal last week, but that's after thousands of people were either killed or thousands of people that were starved to death because they couldn't get food around these kind of concepts of how are the Tigrayans and the Ethiopians different, right? Or the other groups that are in Ethiopia different. But then also, I mean, we saw this in the situation now with uh, the idea of what Kanye was doing, this anti-Semitic um, comments that he was doing. And he was working with a German company that was making billions of dollars in this, you know, collaboration with him, but that has a Nazi past and that has worked hard to um, disavow themselves from that past. And it's interesting that the one of the uh, German Jewish leaders said, look, if you're gonna be continuing to work on this legacy, you've done a great job in the past, but if you wanna continue the good work you've done, you have to break with Kanye, right? And, you know, and again, from a community, German Jews, that once was super large, but that the Holocaust has diminished in size, but that again, probably immigration is adding to, for example. So I, I think that, you know, we're always back and forth between this tension between 
the biological misperception of these categories and their socially constructed idea. And, you know, this past week, I've been reading this Polish uh, medical specialist, uh, Ludwig uh, Fleck, and he was born in Lviv, but when he was born, it was part of Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then after the First World War, it became part of Poland. So he mainly writes in Polish, some in German. 1939 and 1941, when the war starts, it becomes part of the Soviet Union. And then the Germans take it over. Um, and I think the name of it in German is Limburger or Limburg, something like that. And he was sent to Buchenwald. No, Auschwitz first. Um, and he was on a, working on a medical complex right next. The block was right next to Mengele. But part of how he saved himself and his family was he um, was known for the typhus vaccine. So in the concentration camps, he was producing these vaccines. And then he was sent to Buchenwald. And, but he ended up surviving because, and he was responsible for saving 2,000 lives. Now, why do I mention this guy, Fleck? Because Fleck, what Fleck was talking about, besides he was also a philosopher or sociology of science. And he kept saying that we have these collective ideas that because everybody accepts them, we don't really question them. We don't break them down, right? So that we get lost in groupthink. And he called it, he called it a harmony of deception. And, you know, and, and he was talking about ideas like syphilis as a disease and diagnostic, like, how it's a lot, a lot of it was socially constructed, even as disease. And his ideas, which kind of, they weren't really super well covered, but they were becoming more and more important because he was one of the first ones to sort of say, just because we think it and we are in a scientific process doesn't make it true. It's a, the facts themselves are socially constructed and agreed upon. And we oftentimes, ignore advice or evidence that says different. So we try to fit our reality onto the evidence versus allowing the evidence to guide how we theorize and how we understand what these concepts mean. So we're, we're, we're just overloaded with the baggage of race as a biological concept, you know, ethnicity. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at this week, thinking about it. But not only, I mean, what I love about what you just outlined is the ricocheting of these concepts, right, throughout history and, and across continents and, and social contexts and, and so forth, which is really important to, if we want to unpack that together a little bit. But also the idea that social construction, especially the ones that, that, that come from the 18th and 19th century in this, when evolution was, was hot and evolutionary thinking and and natural selection was 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 kind of the frame of reference, right? And and using that for social and, and transposing those insights onto the social realm, right? And so we we literally through the I mean assisted by something that all three of us share in common, namely anthropology. I mean, anthropology was the handmaiden of of this quasi-scientific underpinning that justified separating people into different races or ethnicities and, and nationalities or cultures and creating taxonomies of who's on top and who is not and so forth. And I always remind myself as when I studied anthropology that that's the, that, that is the discipline that underlabored, scientifically underlabored the Nazi regime and, and justified, presumably justified 
racial ideologies and racism and gave it a scientific, a quasi-scientific underpinning. But it was just act, acts of social construction, or I love this, harmony of deception, right? This harmony of deception, and that still is with us today. Every time I see this in a form where I'm asked to, where, where there is a classification, right? What your, ra- your race or ethnicity or whatnot, I'm just reminded of this is just all made up. But it has led to tremendously powerful and painful realities. And we're sitting with those realities. And our job, our historical job is, is as all of these concepts are unraveling, to help unravel them and use that energy and, and, and use it constructively. Cheryl, what, what is your, <laughs> I guess, your so, take on this? <laughs> so my take on this, I'm based here in California. And I identify as African-American and female cisgender. And I was born into the Christian faith. But now I kind of have more of a world view of just spirituality. I said all that to say the intersectionality of who I am and my identities often take front stage and backstage. There are times when my wraith is all people will see. Right now in Los Angeles and California, some of you may be familiar, familiar with the news story where we've had some debacles with our the city council, some of the people that lead that, but between the brown Hispanic communities and the black, the African communities. So therefore, race is all over the place. But then, you know, right on the heels of that, you look at the lean in and all the other movements and gender becomes really important. Cisgender, matter of fact, meaning I was born female and I identify as female. So I tend to find as a professional and, and as an anthropologist, as a communicationist, that you know I'm having to read context. Context becomes everything because I'm always looking to see how is my otherness being received. Primarily where I live and, and even work as, as a consultant is with uh, primarily white people, mostly European, um, mostly American, but they certainly do, do also reflect some global. So I'm navigating. I'm constantly navigating. I'm straddling. Uh, additionally to my race and my ethnicity, I would say my race is Black. I would say my ethnicity was African, as I mentioned earlier. And of course, my nationality is American. There's one other thing that, you know, when we talk about intersectionality, and maybe we'll talk about that in more detail later on, you often, when, when when Dr. Crenshaw first came up with this research, she looked at race, class, gender. And I don't want to leave that class as an element of culture out that straddles race because it's huge. The Kanye conversation that Dr. Adams just talked about, wonder if, if he would have been a lower income, more educated, less educated, and gave that comment would it have had the same impact as a billionaire? You don't know. Would people consider Kanye class or not? Certainly economically he is, but socially and 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 how do you ever you want to define the term class? I don't know. He's he's got certainly some mixed opinions here in my area. There's a term called BIPOC. And many of you have heard maybe that 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 new term, what it means, oh, the initials are B as in baby, I-P-O-C. And it stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. And how that was born around the race piece is they were saying, well, wait a minute, the Black woman and the white woman did not suffer or have the same legacy and still don't today. 
So, yes, women are often marginalized and often, you know, uh, not at the seat of the table. But if you try to say that that's the same fight or the same the same walk, whoa, it's not. So the indigenous means not only African, but Native American folks who basically are not in the not in the a priority, you know, like they don't they don't have the uh, that that advantages that privilege, I guess they would say. So I'm going to pause there because my area is once again the, the key thing to me is context and what part of my otherness is showing. And I work, I mean, not, not worry, but I am often mindful of it. I'm often mindful of it. How am I being received? Yeah, I have a question to that, and and especially, I mean, because I, I think it's so interesting that in especially when it comes to you know topics of diversity and equity and and inclusion there are a lot of acronyms and new terminology that come come out right and which is part of the the, the dilemma I, I think about <laughs> yes. to me I mean we talked about social construction right and sometimes it is an act of social construction to create these labels right I mean BIPOC as you said right it's a label and and it's, I've heard it used now not just in the United States but in other areas as well but the, the dilemma that I have with that it, it insinuates, similarity yeah. right it, it crosses over i mean when you think about black indigenous people of color whatever that means in different contexts it, it puts together an enormously nuanced and complex pattern of experience as i would describe it and so we're creating another label we are socially constructing it in this in this moment and in los angeles we are seeing that the lived reality is actually one where within this group or class or whatever we want to define it there is a lot of tension and and, and conflict absolutely but so how do we use this i mean but yeah so the term bipoc and, and correct me if i'm wrong but from what i understand it was actually started over in europe and started over in um the england area so it's not a us driven uh, term. And then, of course, as, as much research it, it came over here. So it might have made more sense in a more European, Western European context, maybe, you know, like that. Um, I still think it has some of the same shortcomings. It has only taken on a little bit of a foothold here from what ultimately it could mean. I'm not so sure the acronym itself or the label itself you're going to see or have seen a lot of <clears throat> a lot of it as people often identify. But the fact, you know, when you peel back just that and say, OK, you're right. Black women, white women, Latino women, Latin, Latin, Latinas, Native American women, Asian women, they don't they have not traveled the same journey and they do not travel the same journey. And, and is it the female first or the race first? And it's or it, it goes back and forth. Yeah, so you're no most people in this field that I work, we're always careful of labels, always. But it's a place to start because you know, words, that's the way we communicate, is through words and, and other things. And the way that we connect as human beings is through communication, you know, like that. So, you know, the, the most basic definition of communication is a transfer of meaning. So you and I would we, we you don't meet people, you don't get married, you don't date, you don't do this, you don't do if you don't have communication, and that's comes down to words or nonverbal, you know, like this. So so that's kind of where, you know, when you talk about labels, there's a wonderful little theory that's called the labeling theory of race. Maybe you were going to speak to that, uh, Dr. Adams as well. But it talks about, you know, that's that in and of itself 
can put you in a pigeonhole, can put you in a uh, a box that you may or may not even should be in. So, you know, you remind me of what Ralph Ellison said, the um, author of Invisible Man. He was saying, like, uh, change the joke, slip the yoke. And he was talking about the idea about how these labels sort of imprison us in a lot of ways. And with BIPOC, for example, I think while it is um, caught up in a lot of the same tensions that we're, you know, we keep finding new ways to get back into the same tension between the biological and the social. But at the same time, I think that it BIPOC opens up a new way to extend the conversation around race in the U.S. that's been mainly black, white over these 400 and some years. And it allows it to be open in a much broader sense to talk about ways in which people that are non-white experience and also um, face systemic racism. So I think it, in some ways, it has baggage, but it also opens up new opportunities. And it goes back to what you were saying, York, about anthropology as one of the tools of oppression. You know, but it's also been a, it's also been a weapon for um, people speaking back. You know, for the subaltern to sort of like push back and to redefine. And you know, because I'm just thinking about Eric Wolf, one of the greatest American anthropologists who was born in uh, Sudetenland and who was, his life shifted when the Nazis came to power and, you know, that he immigrated here. Um, and I think about so many different um, characters like that, that have been, you know, Angela Davis, for example, all of the folks that have sort of like moved around these global spaces and that have had to shift and use the social scientific training that they've uh, developed to fight back and to try to dismantle. And so I think that our tools, even though they have the baggage, are still have potential for liberation. France Fanon, as a psychiatrist, you know, from Martinique, who ends up using psychiatry to, you know, the, the anti-colonial struggle in Algeria, for example. And, and so I, I think that as we move through these, you know, the, we have to weigh the downsides with their liberation, liberatory, uh, potential and and understand that you know uh, you know like a, so parliament it's with a group <laughs> Cheryl no parliament knows parliament but they used to have a they used to have a saying in one of their songs that it's so wide you can't get around it so low you can't get under it so high you can't get over it <laughs> yes right and these social these social constructions are exactly that they've been with us for a long time and we find ourselves twisted into the pretzel but I think, and this is where I get back to Ralph Ellison and say, well, as long as we're struggling with it, as long as we're trying to bring to consciousness its limitations, that's what Fleck was doing. He wasn't saying that science and medicine didn't matter. He was saying that they matter as long as we're conscious of the ways in which we're not reproducing stereotypes and false knowledge. It goes back to what Durkheim said from the very beginning, the, the sociologist from France who said, Social facts, which are social constructions, have concrete implications, and they have to be treated like that. And that's what we're seeing is the, the concrete implications of that. I mean, you just reminded me why I can sleep well having, you know, as an anthropologist in a way, right? I mean, because there is almost, I mean, there is a whole history of a discipline connected to that. And the very, and you're, you're so right. I mean, the, the tools that have created, done that underlaboring of the social reality we live can be used to, to transform it as well. And, and I think that's that's what we do in all of our work in a, in a sense, right? And 
to me, it's one of the least understood elements around this discussion around race and nationality and culture and, and so forth, how constructed it actually is and how our job today is to deconstruct and reconstruct, most importantly. And the deconstruction, to some degree, is easier than the reconstruction. And I, you know, to some degree, my my focus on inclusive leadership is very much informed by trying to figure out what are the recipes, what are the mindsets, what are the attitudes we need to cultivate for the deconstruction, but most importantly, in the reconstruction. And to me, that is a big question mark still. I mean, these things are really powerful, right? The, these social constructions are incredibly powerful. How do we mindfully deconstruct and effectively reconstruct? To me, that goes to the core of this. And it's important to me for a number of reasons. And I'll, I'll, I'll echo Cheryl for, or I'll, I'll follow Cheryl's invitation to just do, do a little bit of self-reflection, right? So, you know, I, I always say I became white when I, through two realizations. One realization is learning, and this was early in my high school career, learning about the legacy of European colonialism in the world. And Eric Wolf was, was I read Eric Wolf in high school. In German, which was in the, not in college or, or later, you know, the, or, you know, so, so that to me was actually really interesting. But this was a painful realization. I, I remember sitting in my room, reading all of this and re, re, having to reconcile that, you know, the affluence that I was surrounded by. I grew up in the 70s in, in Germany, fairly affluent. And then looking at the, the historical legacy of, of Germany around the Nazi era, that you know, there is a tremendous benefit that I, my generation, have been bestowed based on extremely exploitative, extractive histories that we don't talk about. <laughs> you know, in, by and large, we don't talk about this, even though it was part of the school curriculum at the time, probably with the hope that we will end up talking about it. And I think Germany has done a fairly good job at at least owning up to some of the historical responsibilities. But that was that's when I realized oh, I'm connected at a level that doesn't correspond to how people around me talk or construct their identity. Right? There is a global picture. And that came smack into my realization when I came to the United States, um, where I lived for, for a long time, um, where at every corner you have to disclose your racialized identity and i have to say given the german difficulty with the i mean with, with the word race i have a still a very hard time just to utter the word race just to use it as if it were a fact you know i much prefer the idea of racialized identity because that at least acknowledges the social construction of it and you know that that we're not dealing with a positivistic um you know notion of of reality so my racialized identity is certainly white and to some degree European. But I say this with all those disclaimers, with all this meaning behind it, right? I'm a cisgender male, you know, and, and I love the idea of that, that even the use of those terms, cisgender, is fairly recent and new, that we, we, we have to think about the construction of sexuality, right? And look at how our societies have are giving us constructs that may not correspond to 
you know what scientifically we 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 know and we are finding out nationality is a is a fluid concept anyway <laughs> right so by by nationality i'm german but you know and for have been through many generations but you know we we see on the map of politics that that our national identities are bound to shift and are subject to change you know very frequently um so i mean th- those are just just kind of class wise which is i think is a really important lens that we don't talk about i come from a working class from two working class parents who in the through the economic development in the 70s and 80s post war germany um have really moved into the middle class right so culturally in a sense i'm of a middle class i'm a product of working class parents that that made it into the middle class so so that's a that's that's its its own dynamic right its own social phenomenon there and i see that replicated a lot in in developing economies right now in india and and in china and 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 many places around the world where that my growing up experience is now an emerging reality for many religiously i just need to because cheryl you 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 mentioned religion as well as one of those categories of othering right i'm agnostic i consider myself an agnostic but i i was shaped by a social environment that was very catholic you know when when whenever you use the word religion in where i grew up in that context the only thing that comes to mind was the catholic church and then also a little bit the protestant movement right protestant church because obviously germany having been that that at the forefront of the division between catholicism and and protestantism but but the part of germany where i'm from that has shaped me was was much more that catholic mindset i would say you know to pick up from that um second generation third generation african americans are steeped in religion steeped because that was the salvation the safety that was the 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 underground railroad you know to use that as a success and and this is an opinion this next comment that my generation my granddaughter's generation and perhaps the generation that the my gen z as they say the more you travel the world the more you recognize the diversity of people the more you may step out of a singular religious label or title or church you know i would say that i'm very spiritual you know, like that and and by and i spread by spiritual i mean the kindness of others is a greater power than me you know and kind of like the world health organization's definition of spirituality but when I, when i have gone to my church lutheran here in the us some of the belief systems you know about what where women stand it's just it's not me you know, like that and i don't disrespect those who choose to to do that so therefore I, i pulled away you know and interestingly enough as i share my uh comments and thoughts and with with others just in general like my girlfriend my very my my informal you know uh network we're all kind of in a lot of agreement you know like that even though you, you were teasing us earlier dr adams about being a a pastor and i know you're not but you know I, but the pks <laughs> the pastoral kids and like that they're they're doing the same thing too i have a couple of pastors in my family not uncles that were they're not with us anymore but none of their children are they're my age are in the church they they would they, they're not for many re- for, the, for for many reasons you know they're good people but they just say how can i 
how can I just be one, you know, like that. That's, but that's a very personal decision. And I respect that uh, because there are people who would be much further on the, sure, I can't believe you set that spectrum, but it's okay to me. I mean, my specialization in anthropology is religion. And, you know, I did my field work on Dominican voodoo. Um, but just to kind of piggyback to the idea you talked about before in terms of communications and reference points and to kind of tie together with this idea about anthropology. And it itself is a fluid signifier because when I did my field work and I went and told people I was an anthropologist in the you know, Haitian Dominican borderlands, you know what they heard from me? They heard that anthropology didn't mean anything to them. They looked at my skin and said that I'm Dominican. They looked at the fact that I spoke English and that I did, definitely was tied to America, that I, that I was a criminal that had gone to jail and was a deportee. And this anthropology thing was a hustle that, you know, it's a sort of a trick, you know, that I was waiting to spring on people. So I had to navigate this idea of people having all these sort of like, you know, again, in their local context, what all this stuff meant. Right. And it, it took me a minute to kind of get there. But, you know, the other question you asked, York, was like, how do we reconstruct? And I don't know if the real, the main job is reconstruction as much as the main job is to teach people how to dance in this whole process. And I use the word dance from the George Foreman, Muhammad Ali fight in, in Kinshasa, right? Where, again, he has this overwhelming force. And how is he going to deal with it? He's going to dance with it. And I think that's what Ralph Ellison in Invisible Man is telling us, is that, you know, we don't get over it, we don't get around it, we don't get under it, but we dance with it and we teach people. And, you know, the experience that you talked about in terms of this German experience and, you know, like even not living in Germany, the ways in which that history, I consumed it as well. You know, whether when I eat gummy bears, <laughs> right? yes. you know, when I go to when I go to Trader Joe's, I'm tapping into, you know, when I wear Adidas, I'm tapping into the same, you know, Nazi period um, companies and legacies. So even I'm far away from it, I, the global environment brings me through it and I have to dance around it. You know, Aldi's, all of that stuff. Right. Um, you know, and it's not to sort of um, besmirch, you know, these companies, because I think in some ways, if we think about Nazism as really, Another form of, um, you know, the global racism, you know, whether it's apartheid, whether it's Jim Crow, eugenics, these are all the same things, you know, and, and it's easy for, you know, like I said, to condemn a particular group of people that were practicing these ideas. And this is what I really liked about the Holocaust documentary that Ken Burns just came out with recently, you know, where he was talking about, where he was highlighting again, the ways in which we might have been critical in some ways of Germany but we were turning away Jewish refugees by the scores, right? Yes, and it's all part of that that great contradiction, right? That we are very embroiled in and living. Yeah, right. Because if because the thing is, if like this is the thing, like you know, Joseph Campbell talks about the hero with a thousand faces, right? And this is the thing about racism, classism, gender discrimination, and religious discrimination it comes in so many local forms that it's hard to see it as a, a uber concept. It's easier to sort of condemn it in its local manifestations and to sort of like be pointing a finger at somebody else 
while you're practicing the exact same thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's it, it, and I think this is what what th- th- this realization is really important when we learn to dance again, right? I mean, the I love this way of talking about the work of reconstruction because it's not, and I didn't mean it in this monolithic sense that we now we now need to derive some other forms that are more pure or real, and and once we've derived them, we're done. It's more like what is that process of of reconstruction? What it, how do we facilitate that in a sense? How do how do we become the, the the facilitators of that great dance that helps us reconfigure and 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 I was reminded, Cheryl, by your conversation about religion and and it's 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 easy maybe with a little bit of it if you're not attached to any one particular religious tradition, then when you are actually very attached to one, and we may offend or I may offend when I when I say this that religion oftentimes is an, just like culture is this great syncretic mix right of of different influences that that get created and molded and 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 give rise to certain specific forms that we then assume are pure in some sense but that idea of purity probably is one of those <laughs> harmonies of of deception <laughs> right that there is anything pure around these things and that we we haven't, throughout this long human history, borrowed from what we saw other people do and been highly creative in in assimilating and combining different things. Um, I think that's just the way um, culture, so you know, and so the social works. You know, Robert, um, you were mentioning um, doing your field work and uh, thinking you might have been all, all those things. I. Oftentimes, when you're doing your um, gaining entry portion of the at the field work, funny things happen. So, as you two know, I did my uh, PhD dissertation studying African behaviors like that in um, in situ, and so which which brought me to the to the jungles of the Amazon with some um, in place some tribes that had been more unaffected by the outside world. So I was there for a long time for uh, over a couple of years. But anyway. Sorry to interrupt you for for a moment, but I need to stop you there because it's actually really important to say that you were studying African behaviors in the jungles of the okay, Amazon. Yes, okay, yes. I, I mean, just just I want to highlight that. Thank uh, you. Because you say it as a, as a you know as, as the most natural <laughs> and obvious thing to do, and <laughs> and yet when you think about you know the jungles of the Amazon, most people don't associate. Thank you for reminding me that. So briefly, when I was looking at what communities would I study, because I really wanted to know what is it about African Americans, their communication that is African. Because at that time, back in the '90s, so the Ebonics was on, was being talked about. You know, you know, all these kinds of people were children were not being passed along because of language, and all kinds of things was happening. So I said, you know, what is it about us that that's African and how we behave, how we how we speak? So in talking to doing my my field research, I realized that most of Africa, which I thought I was going to be going to do it in, has a lot of global. You know, they have the Hilton and the Marriotts, and they have the all the different uh, influences there. So I kept checking, and then I followed the path of the Maroons, or at that time they were referred to as Bush Negroes, and who were Africans that were that were taken out of Africa against their will, brought across by Dutch colonists, brought across the, the Atlantic, and uh, for the sole purpose of being a slave, they hit 
South America, which was land. So if you kind of look at the belly of Africa, if you were to take a ruler and kind of draw it from Ghana to say the first place land hits, it's in uh, Dutch, Dutch Guinea. Now it's called Suriname. And so contrary to what some histories say that, you know, we got off the boats and we just kind of went aimlessly into the into into this enslavement. We didn't. We hit land and we fought. We fought a hundred year war to where we finally gained independence away, you know, the, from the colonists. But we're relegated to live in the in the in the Amazon forest and Amazon, you know, in the in the jungles. So what they did is these these Africans that came from all the many tribes all throughout Africa that had been brought over for the express purpose of slavery started to forge their own communities like that. So they knew how to work the land because they knew the trees and the plants and they knew how to do that. They understood the rivers like that. So a lot of that because it was similar to some of the African flora and fauna. So they did that and they remained there even to this day um, and maintaining more Africanisms than places in Africa. I won't say every place, but a lot of places in Africa. So I learned that and I was kind enough. So I started my trips into that dislocation, hoping that they would accept me to like what you're saying, Robert, into living with them for a while for, so I could get some understanding. And uh, for I'd probably say 80 percent of every place that I went to and along this hundred mile strip, I was the first outsider. I had to carry my father's picture with me, who's African, who was dark, who's darker complected. So they, because they thought I could whiten me. And if you had any white in you, you were considered an enemy or they, or could they question you. So anyway, um, so I did that. You know, and then I was enveloped, the Paramount Chiefs and everybody said, yes, they gave me all one requirement, which I thought was beautiful. They said, you're welcome to the entire tribes, all of it. And we want to tell you all of our stories. Just do us a favor, tell it accurately tell it through our eyes. And to this day, you know, 25 plus years later, I still do that because um, so many uh, white, well-meaning anthropologists have gone in, but anytime you're going to tell a story through your world's lens, it's going to have some, just word choice alone can have a difference. So that is what I did. So then I was able to complete the dissertation and I've since had other publications. But anyway, so so I lived there. And so my my story was to connect what you were going to say. They um, co-wives is part of who they are. And so um, because sometimes it's not enough males for females to keep the villages going. So you have, and it's a whole system. I won't go into that now. How co-wives are brought on and on all this net. And what the men need to do to have a co-wife. So even though I'm married and been married a long time, um, Kenny wasn't with my husband wasn't with me. He like that. I was um, asked to be someone's wife. I was propositioned from one of the chiefs and one of the village leaders. And so the the the, the uh, culturalist that was traveling with me, I said, "Oh my God, how do I how do I say this that that I'm that I'm." Um, that I cannot marry <laughs> someone without being offensive because, I mean, they were, he had sent uh, people to, you know, give this, this engagement type thing or whatever. So finally, she made up a story. It was a, you know, Nadia, love this lady, that something where I come from, you know, we something's wrong with us and we only get one. You know, like that, you know, the, the country that, and where we come from, you only have to get one. So they had special, not prayer, but they had a special ceremony. You know, sorry that that I only had one. 
one of those times my ex-husband came to visit me and they also kind of prayed for him that he only has one you know, like that and they were so sorry that whatever it was he had done wrong <laughs> <laughs> now today you know because they did christianity wasn't framed there now today is much much different you know, like that so I, what I love about this is also the reminder to everybody who's not an anthropologist who's dying, you know, of the value, because ultimately, to Robert's point earlier, when when we, we go in and we use this anthropological perspective, we are we, we are actually illuminating the social constructedness of the world. Sure, right? sure. In the case of marriage and family and, 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 you know, all kinds of things, right? And how difficult it is to reconcile this sometimes. But really, we are exposing ourselves and through, um, you know, through this to different realities and how profound the, the phenomenon of social construction is. But I also wanted to resonate with something you said about, you know, that you were entrusted with telling their story, right, as accurately as possible, which is another lesson to me, is ide around identity. As being a really, I mean, ultimately, identity is such a powerful source of yeah, power, in a sense, of attachment. And we want to make sure that our identity and the experience that it comes with is honored and told the way it is, right, with integrity. Exactly, York. I spent an unusual amount of time triangulating my data. You triangulate anyway. That's part of, you know, anytime you do an ethnographic piece. But because I wanted to make sure, even my word choice, because many of the words in English, they don't have a word that means the same thing in one of the tribal languages. And so I had to, you know, make sure working through um, translators. But even when you work through a translator, are you getting there? word are you getting that word like that so i had to use i use men women young oh blah 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 so to find out to say the word is um there was one question i asked what are you doing when you're having fun that's a you know anthropology question we ask what are you doing not thinking not feeling what are you doing when you're having fun so fun didn't come across as as a concept as a, as a word so what they what finally they had several you know people trying to come up with their word and they build wood carvings and the ladies do calabash carvings and they either do it for the house or they sell them now so much so i asked i said is that fun and and but that was the closest we could get so when I reported it, I reported it through their you know, eyes or whatever. And then I put a little for the reader who's not in that, what that means. Because woodworkers to you, it might be a hobby. It could be. And it could be fun. It could be. But usually, you know, we think of, are you singing? Are you dancing? Are you this? Are you eating? Are you joyful? Are you joking? And they don't have jokes, by the way, at least not the way we would say jokes. Because I asked them, tell me something that would be considered funny to hear. What might you hear? That could be funny. And they laughed at my question. That was funny. So I'm like, well, okay, I'm getting somewhere. Anthropologists <laughs> asking questions. I'm getting funny. somewhere. <laughs> you are funny like that. So, but you know, and they and they were really serious. I can't tell you how gracious I was. And to this day, I pay homage to them and I go back as much as I can. And to where it was an education on both sides, and they told me that. 
And uh, but I know I learned far more than 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 I left, you know, like that. And you're right, York, just being able to embrace that difference, that newness was was amazing. Cheryl, just I know we um, need to wrap up, but let me just, um, you know, I grew up with maroon objects in my house that I didn't quite understand fully. I came to understand it later. In the early 70s, I lived in Holland. Oh, then you know. Right. And my father had a horrific accident in Holland and was in the hospital for an extended amount of time. Some of the people that were caring for him in the hospital were Surinamese. And so as part of his rehabilitation therapy, they taught him how to carve these wood objects. Yes, yes. So we had these wood objects in the house. Yes, yes. Right? (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, that's what I'm saying about oh, that's how oh, I love things hearing come that. back and forth. Yeah. We have to talk more about that. That's, yeah, Holland is um, uh, with the Dutch colonists. To this day, it's huge. As a matter of fact, the official language of the country is Dutch. But when you get into the interior, it's not, you know, some speak it, but mostly it's the tribal language. But yeah, a lot of that comes across the archaeology of it, the the the, the objects, you know, that, that's nice. That's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm just I mean you know to 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 wrap this up for today and and but I'm just amazed you know we've taken a tour a little bit through I mean we, we stitched together a few environments right whether it's Poland Germany Russia well you know the United States certainly Holland now and and Suriname and that connection right through your field work and and through your your family. And we also, you know, went a little bit into the art and science of anthropology and, you know, its history and and the power of it uh, illuminating our constructed social world and, and hopefully giving us more materials to stitch together um, into our dance. I just love this conversation. And I'm, you know, I, I just want to learn more about, Robert, your, your field work, actually. Um, Cheryl, yours as well. And, and I think as we are... As, as we are embarking on a whole series of conversations about the, the social constructedness of the world and the, the, the concepts we use to other others, or the, the concepts we have invented to other others, right? Race, ethnicity, religion, nationality, culture. It just really, you know, motivates me to, to really get deep into this and stitch it together through our own personal histories, as well as our work, right? Whether it's our field work, our work with corporations. Uh, Robert, early on, you reminded us of, of Kanye's, um, you know, del- I mean, the dilemma around, you know, endorsements and 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 the corporate implications to all of these questions. I love the richness of, of our exploration. And I can't wait to do more of that and record our series for the next season in the Inclusive Leadership Institute. But I also want to mention that our our dear friend and colleague Akoshua couldn't make it today. She is certainly part of this conversation and adds a very important perspective. Namely, she is located in Ghana. She is from Ghana with a very interesting family and personal history. And I think when we actually record our series that we are expanding our horizon by having her part of this exploration. Yes. York, thank you so much for inviting us and getting us all together. It's a pleasure. Yes, thank you so much. Absolutely. So more to come in our next season. So this was just a little bit of a teaser <laughs> to what we will explore, but I can't wait to share it with, with our audience. Thank you for listening. 
You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www.theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com. Thank you.